Well, this is uh, week two and the final week of our series, Village People. And last week, we looked at what our village uh, looks like. And uh, for us this year, that means uh, taking on a thematic goal that will shape uh, what, how we think about who we are and, and how we are in uh, 2021. So Dave's going to put it up on the screen. But in 2021, we want to learn to live. We're living as a village that, that offers Jesus' life in all its fullness. And that includes spiritual, physical, emotional, and social. And last week we unpacked how this lies at the heart of the great commandment to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it captures this holistic uh, sphere of engaging with God and with each other. And we discovered that the, the kind of village that we want to build is a village that has walls that both protect and proclaim. Walls that create places to belong, that are our oases, if you like, but also their height allows us to proclaim uh, that it is good, come and taste and see. We also talked about how villages had markets, and that, that Jesus' particular experience of a market uh, was, was so negative that he found himself turning over tables uh, in frustration that people would put barriers in the way of anyone coming into the presence of God. And so for us, uh, we enter into our own markets with that same sense of determination, that same sense of desire to not have anything stand in the way of those uh, that might want to come uh, and uh, meet Jesus. And we discovered that uh, villages also have wells, uh, wells that are available to anyone, uh, no matter their background, and that these are deep wells, wells of living water that quench uh, deep thirsts. And so... We began to get a sense of the shape of the village and how that will guide our activity uh, in 2021. This week, we're turning to the second part of our title. Uh, we have a village, uh, but we also need people. So tonight we focus on what, a vi- what the villages look like, who the villages are, because who you and I are as the villages uh, in the village makes a difference. I wish you pray with me. Father God, uh, we want to open ourselves once again to your word, to the way which it can shape us and challenge us and convict us and pull us out of those things that distract and, uh, and, and pull our vision away from you onto the, onto the more mundane things of the world that seem to, that seem to tickle uh, what, what it is that we need, but within the end don't satisfy. So God, um, we want to just come to you with an openness with a sense of surrender, that we don't know all the answers, we don't have it all together, uh, and that we need you to help uh, shape our vision for life and shape how, how we do life. And so would you do that for us individually, uh, but would you also do it for us collectively so that we might be the body of Christ together, the village together, focusing on loving you and loving neighbor. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to um, kick off tonight with, uh, uh, with uh, a particular uh, person uh, that we discover in this gospel. Now, I don't know how you see the disciples, the exposure, level of exposure you've had to them. For me, the disciples as a, as a group are, are generally not what you might think of as Israel's finest. They seem a little young in some cases. They seem a little unqualified. In others, not not very kind of worldly wise, not much life experience. 
Uh, someone reminded me recently that it really does take a village. And I'm not saying that the disciples are in this category, but, but you get it, right? Sometimes it seems like they're a few credits short of an NCA. But you, you can't say that about all of them. There are exceptions. And one of those exceptions is Matthew. Traditionally understood as the writer of this gospel, uh, Matthew's gospel, which is our gospel for 2021. So we know he can write for a start, but there was much more to Matthew. For him, being a disciple was a genuine second career for him. He'd already made his way in the world, and he was doing really well. Matthew, who sometimes um, in the other gospels referred to as Levi, made his living as a tax collector prior to following Jesus. And Matthew was, was from, in terms of his family, was from the priestly tribe of Levi. And the tribe of Levi in the Old Testament uh, was designated as the tribe from which the priests of Israel were to come. You can read about that in Numbers 35.6. And this priestly vocation in which Matthew would have been groomed for uh, started at an early age. He would have been immersed in the study of the scriptures and the rabbinical tradition, uh, such as we actually find scattered throughout Matthew's gospel. We see his learning uh, emerging from this gospel, which of all of them is written specifically to assist uh, Jewish converts to Christianity. But he turned away. Turned away from that heritage, that sense of family vocation, he turned away from it all and went to work for the IRD. Now, it's bad, and, and forgive me if, no, I don't think you have anyone from the IRD here tonight. Uh, forgive me for saying that as bad as that sounds to our ears, that someone might work for the IRD. As a tax collector, in the period that he worked for the occupying Roman Empire, he would have been seen as a traitor to his people. This is not just a career choice that family uh, would frown upon. This was a huge, deep disappointment at the deepest uh, cultural level. The Jewish, the Jewish League just thought of tax collectors as the lowest of the low. And to be, to be in such an occupation was really guaranteed to just cut you off uh, from Jewish community. Because in a sense he was seen as unclean. And that's really taking being a disappointment to your parents, to, to new levels. And Matthew worked for uh, King Herod in collecting uh, taxes on the goods that were going from Damascus to the Mediterranean. And uh, the, the post was such that all of his... Uh, priestly training, all of the things that he had learned, particularly uh, the, the way that that training would have exposed him to Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew, allowed him to manage this kind of post. He, he, was, he was gifted and he was able and he was successful financially and he was coming to the attention of those people who mattered. Until he met Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, 
And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, I don't know whether he took a sick day. The, uh, the commentators are silent on whether it was sick day or annual leave. We're not sure. But he didn't, he didn't show up for work after that. He never made another appearance. He leaves it all behind. And so you'd expect now that he's stopped being that evil tax collector, that he'd be cool, right? That everybody's kind of okay with him now. He'll be, he'll be accepted back into the mainstream of Jewish society, right? Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Matthew, forever branded the tax collector, was known by his sin. Matthew the disciple, on the other hand, was known for being a magnet for sinners. He was attracting them, inviting them over to his house. Far from being brought back into the mainstream, Matthew remains on the edge. And he becomes this gateway for the broken. This gateway for others to get close to Jesus. And it's kind of ironic. None of Matthew's greatest skills, none of the ones that he learned in his upbringing, none of the ones that he learned since then, seem to, to matter as much as this part of what he has. This broken, shunned man who becomes a gateway to others, who shares his home with Jesus and a bunch of outcasts. And yet, the same Matthew, the priest gone off the rails, is the kind of person who has the skills and the experience to write a gospel such as Matthew's gospel. That, that appeals deeply and instinctively to the Jewish mind. <coughs> this call that Jesus makes for Matthew, it makes a huge difference. It makes all the difference. And so does Matthew. Matthew makes a difference because of it. It can be the same for us. Whatever, whoever, wherever, Jesus' call can make a difference to us. I want to give you just a moment to reflect. And, and I don't want to overguide your reflection here, but for some of you, I wonder whether that call is something that you've heard before. And it's something that might need to come back to the top of who you are. Maybe for others of you, you're, you're wondering and hoping that, that maybe God would do for you what he did for Matthew. Invite you to take a moment as well to sit and reflect and to hear God's call for you. And for the first time, and not the last time in eight weeks, please feel free to write in a journal mm-hmm. as these things come to mind. Take a moment.
As a tax collector, Matthew knew all about death and taxes. As a disciple, he knew all about what death itself means. And Matthew, I think, uniquely understands what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to leave a life of excess and success behind to pursue something that's really counterintuitive, that doesn't seem like it fits the qualifications that the world might put on that. And he records some key words of Jesus on the subject of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. He records uh, some of these words uh, in Matthew 5, and I think they help make it a bit real for us. He says in Matthew 5.30, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything except to throw it out and trample underfoot. I think in today's more modern world, we, we think of salt uh, as a condiment. It's something that you add to food in the cooking process uh, or you add to food afterwards if the cook has under-seasoned it. But with no, with no refrigeration in this period in history, salt was also used as a way to preserve uh, food, particularly, particularly meat uh, for later use. There's an interesting echo, actually, of this passage, of this the saltiness being referred to in Leviticus 2.13, which captures this. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not, that's like putting salt on a wheat mix. Do not leave the salt off the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. So this this imperative in Leviticus is not unknown uh, to Matthew's uh, first uh, listeners. And here salt is, is evidence of God's activity in a person's life. Adding salt to the grain emphasizes preservation and durability, that, that this is something that will last. Salt is part of, of the offering to God. Saltiness is a part of our worship. It says, I'm not going anywhere, God. This is, this is it for me. This is a permanent state of focus. And so for the Jewish mind, salt was a, was a symbol of, of incorruption and permanence. And this would have made perfect sense to the first century Jewish hearer or reader to whom Matthew was writing to. And to take it even a step further, you can find reference to this, uh, the use of salt as an offering symbolized in this everlasting relationship between God and his people. You can check that out in Second Chronicles 13. So for us, as we come to Matthew's Gospel, salt is both flavoring and uh, preservative. It's lost some of its meaning for us because we're less involved in the process. But let me just illustrate this by reference to something that most of you have had a deep spiritual experience with. Bacon. Did anyone arrive in time to smell the bacon that Lindsay was cooking tonight? Oh my goodness. I nearly became a Christian. If you've ever eaten bacon, you've been a part of this use of salt. This idea of salt being used to preserve as a curing agent. 
So when Jesus says to his followers, when Matthew records it in this way, and, and when Jesus says you are salt, he means you both inhibit decay and you add flavor. You stop the rot in the world around you and you add a distinct flavor to it. Which is all very interesting. But the point of this saying is about salt that actually loses its saltiness. Salt that is no good and is thrown out and is just trampled underfoot. And this is the connection here to being a disciple of Jesus is really crucial. In, in one sense, what Matthew's saying is if the disciples don't live up to their calling, then they will be useless to the coming kingdom. They have lost the purpose that salt has in, its, uh, in, in this passage. To live and speak and act the gospel. There's this, um, it's quite well known in the Jewish world, it's a, it's a famous exchange between rabbis. And it's the sort of story uh, that gets passed around that everybody knows. They, they know it really well. And so certain language triggers uh, bring that to mind. Well, let me just give you an example. Knock, knock. All right, that's a, that's a language trigger. And in the same way, when Jesus says uh, here, it talks about salt being thrown out. This, uh, and, and tasteless salt, it brings to mind this, this discussion, this argument that was happening between different rabbis. And uh, the question that was asked by one rabbi to another rabbi was, what do you add to tasteless salt to restore its saltiness? What do you add to tasteless salt to restore its saltiness? Does anyone happen to know the answer? <laughs> There's no chance you know the answer. This is what you add, according to rabbi number two. You add the afterbirth of the mule. It's in the rabbinical tradition. It's not something I made up. Now, if I would have if I'd thought of it. Um, I would have happily preached from that text. Which just sounds gross, right? Yes. But in fact, it's sarcasm. It's, it's because mules are sterile half-breeds, right? So there ain't no afterbirth. In other words, ask a silly question, get a silly answer. What the story tells us is that salt that is not salty is actually just nonsense. It's not something that should be. It's not something that should be contemplated. So what exactly is the salt that Jesus is getting at here? Well, if you back up the truck and if, you, if you've got your Bibles open, you'll see that at the beginning of Matthew 5, uh, Matthew records Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in part of it anyway, in particular, uh, the Beatitudes of Matthew 5, which come immediately prior. And it's these values which are the values of the kingdom. It's these values and actions and mindsets and postures in society uh, that inhibit decay and add flavor to humanity. And if we do not add, uh, we do not exhibit the saltiness of these Beatitudes at work, then... Matthew would suggest we are not his disciples. Salt trampled underfoot is worthless. Tasteless salt lacks value. So does discipleship that fails to express the values of the kingdom. And if we take the salt out of the Beatitudes, 
We exchange the, uh, the transparency and the authenticity of the poor in spirit. We, we trade it for being self-sufficient and independent. In other words, operating like islands, operating like we're not connected, operating like we're not part of the village. Or we exchange the vulnerability of life as human beings with its grief and its disappointments for a, for a much thicker skin, faking it till we make it. We can exchange the humility and the interests of others for pride and ambition that, that seeks to inherit the earth or at least our neighbor's position in it. We, seek, we exchange a thirst for whatever is right, for whatever works. For us, for the company, for the customer. We exchange mercy and kindness for revenge, for punishment. It becomes a, not a village, but a dog-eat-dog environment. Some of you know what I'm talking about. We exchange purity of heart and, and, and motive for deception. White lies and dishonesty enter our lives. We become stirrers and gossipers and followers instead of, of being peacemakers. We prefer anonymity as Christ's followers. We'd rather keep it on the down low rather than risk persecution for being a freak, whether that's at work or at school or at uni. For us being sold, exhibiting the seasoning and the preserving nature of the Beatitudes is a matter of character. Because who we are makes a difference. And these are the, the flavors, these are the values that will shape how we act and how we choose and the postures and values that we reflect in our world. Because I'd suggest to you that nobody wants to be part of a village that exhibits the very same stuff that you can get every day in the rat race. We have something else to offer. There's something deeper to offer. And we don't have it because we're any good. We're all Matthews when it really comes down to it. We have it because God has seen, seen, seen uh, that he would call us. So I want to give you a moment um, to ask, how, how is your salty salt? Because there's a difference between being salt and just being salty, right? Uh-huh. So, how's it going for you? Take a moment. Here's your journey. There's a second part of this follow-up to the Beatitudes. In verse 14, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. This is the visibility of a city in lights. Have you ever driven over the Harbour Bridge? And as you, or especially down Croach Road, you come along uh, the motorway before you get to the bridge, and you can just see the whole skyline picked out in lights. Uh, this is the city that is captured in lights. 
And it's especially powerful if it's elevated, if it's high so that you can see it. Uh, my kids love to pick out the sky tower wherever they see it. It's like it moves around when you're on those motorways. Uh, they love to see this, uh, this landmark. This is the kind of light that Jesus' followers will be. Light that's visible. Light that's visible. And not light that's on the floor, but light that's on a stand. What's the difference between light that's on the floor and light that's on the stand? The light on the stand is actually useful. So this is, this is a parable of useful light as well as visible light. Uh, light that is, is serving its purpose. See, light is something that is meant to be seen, or more to the point, it allows us to see. When light is not seen, the people are in darkness. And so in this season uh, of, of history, light after dark was an incredible gift. Oil lamps used uh, to light homes uh, in times of darkness all around the ancient world. And, and something that uh, we struggle to get away from light in the suburban con uh, context that, that most of us live in. You have to get away out into the country uh, to, actually get, to, to actually see that uh, in, in our day. Now, this saying, the light of the world, is something that Christ uh, also says about himself in, in, in John's Gospel. Uh, if you want to look that up, it's in uh, chapter 8, chapter 12. But here, he's giving this designation uh, to us as well. Uh, and in a way, uh, this statement to be light is a bit of a, a, bit of a mission statement uh, for the Beatitudes, a bit of an action statement for the Beatitudes that we might point out and illuminate those parts of our society that, that are in decay, where the rock has set in. And in a, in a way, Jesus intends us when he says in Matthew 5, 16, when he tells the disciples to let, the, the, to let others see their good works so they can glorify God. In the same kind of rabbinic tradition that I was talking about earlier, um, there's the saying, the people that walk in darkness will see a great light. You might recall that also uh, coming in other places in the scriptures. And Jesus is that light, and here we see this as a point of transfer from him as the light of the world uh, to his followers to spread the light throughout uh, the world. So we take the image as it's expressed to us. This is light as obvious and useful. Obvious and useful. Imagine applying that to yourself. People that are obvious and useful. People that stand out and help the world around them. That point the way to God in the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father. And what Matt, the, the upside of what Matthew's suggesting is that a disciple whose life reveals none of the Father's work in us, is a bit like the inventor who invented invisible light for the purpose of helping people see better. It's useless. It doesn't achieve anything. Where, where we are and how we are makes a difference for what people see uh, of God in the world. We are, we are light and darkness. Sometimes offering hope, sometimes comfort, sometimes bringing truth and truthfulness 
to the lives of those we are privileged to walk with. We, we get to be visible expressions of the invisible God. His hands and His feet and His eyes as we move from a place of indifference in our, in our lives to a, a place of making a difference. I like what 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says about this. Let light shine out of darkness. And the God, for the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Who we are is a window to who God is. Where we are makes a difference. Who we are makes a difference. And what we do makes a difference. All around the walls here, you'll see uh, posters that capture uh, these things that we're wanting to hold together uh, in, our, in our walk towards being a village together.